This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malad. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. Today, I am visiting with Melissa O'Dell. She is the executive director of Defy Ventures, Illinois. Melissa has been on the Defy Ventures team for the past six years, most recently in the role of vice president of programs nationally. Although currently residing in Chicago, Melissa originally grew up in New York. She is a person driven by fulfilling her sense of purpose in this world and to that end was led to pursue her B.A. from Franklin and Marshall College in Government and Women's Studies, and then on to achieve her Master's from NYU in Social Work and Public Policy. During our conversation, you'll hear all about her years spent working at the Center for Court Innovation, which helped provide new opportunities to individuals involved in the criminal justice system and increase the efficacy of the judiciary and how that directly impacted her current role with Defy Ventures. It all ties together beautifully. That is just the tip of the iceberg of Melissa's impressive resume. But even more impressive to me is Melissa's authenticity, her quest to do and to be the good in this world and her relentless drive to help change a broken justice system. She speaks with authority, knowledge, experience, and compassion. This is the soul behind Defy Ventures. Melissa, I am so thankful that you can join me on Gramercy today. I'm really looking forward to hearing about your life and learning about what you do, and uh, just thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Corey. I, I can't um, wait to really dig into this conversation. Um, obviously, we got connected by a, a mutual good friend uh, and somebody who really inspires me regularly. So I think that's a great place to, to jump off. Yes. What a great launching pad. Well, to start off and get to know you just on a really easy, non-threatening basis, <laughs> I have a really fun question for you. If okay. you could time travel and live anywhere in the world at any time of history, where would that be and why? So it's going to sound strange because I am an ardent feminist and everybody who knows me uh, would be like, wait, what? Um, but I would love to uh, time travel to like medieval England. Um, I, I have really? always been yeah, really passionate um, and just a sucker for Arthurian legend and like the sort of um, 
there, there's a, a romanticism, I guess, to like the Renaissance time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I was, you know, always into um, the Renaissance fair. And, you know, in high school, um, you know, I read The Mist of Avalon and it like changed my life. Really? Which is a, which is a feminist retelling of Arthurian legends. So. Uh-huh. So even though it is probably the most like repressive time period to try for to women, <laughs> I'm like, I would love to just be a fly on the wall and, and yes. um, experience that. Yes. Your kid, you're, you're, you don't have kids. You have one child, right? A, I do. a son I or do. a daughter? A daughter, Amelia. Because what you said reminds me of a book that in a series that I used to read with my kids that you probably read with yours, it's called the Magic Tree House, and they time travel, and they oh, get to go back to any time of history, and they get to relive it, just like you're saying. And okay. um, it reminds me of of one of those stories. She might really love it, and you might love it too, because I got okay. so much out of it by Mary Pope Osborne. So if you're okay. interested, I, I am. I'm gonna write that one down because I'm always looking for um, a good series to to engage her. So I love it. Magic Fantastic. Well, I love that the middle. Ages. So, are you a huge fan of Shakespeare? Yes, I will say that that was again probably something that, um, like, I can't re uh, recite a sonnet or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was in. I, I think I just, um, and I, I liked. Uh, and so, this is like a different time period. But I, I really did love British literature. So, like, you know, Hardy, and then you know, um, yeah, what was it like? Um, uh, I loved, I remember reading Frankenstein for the first time and being like, this is the best. And yes. you know, any type of Gothic romance and anything like from, again, uh, and I've never been to England before. And I don't really? know, it just, it, yeah, but it continues to fascinate me. And, you know, someday I will get there and wear like a really uh, fantastic, mm -hmm. you know, dress that's like velour or something. And I will, <laughs> and I will go to, you know, uh, look at, you know, amazingly old books, you know, in library. I, I just love the history. And I actually thought uh, there was a brief moment where I was like, I'm going to be a scholar of medieval literature and my mom was like can you please get a real job like what <laughs> there is no way to support yourself it's like okay but wow. um but yeah it continues to be something that i'm just i'm fascinated by i love the the, the pageantry around that mm -hmm. so you know maybe i would go and see a joust or something that that's cool. fantastic but i think that we all need a little bit of romance and fantasy and um Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's really, that that's what's the beauty of books, right? I mean, I yes. think George R.R. R. Martin said, like, you know, I've lived a thousand lives, right? Because, you know, I've been able to create these characters and go all these mm -hmm. places. And I, I love that. Okay, Melissa, we could just make the rest of yeah. this podcast about reading and books yeah. and literature because that's one of my passions as well. Oh, we could just go back and forth. I love this so much. Well, yeah, go ahead and give me a little bit of um, background of your history, what it was like growing up being you. Did you grow up in the Chicago area? Have you always stayed there? No. Okay. This sounds oh. like it's going to be a good story. What led you to where you are in life right now? Oh, it's a classic love story. Okay. Um, well, uh, <laughs> um, well, so I'm originally from New York. I grew up on Long Island and um, it was, you know, I, I think I had a, a, a an interesting childhood. So, um, you know, certainly had, you know, some challenges like, you know, most people do. Uh, my parents divorced when I was very young and 
I lived with my mom on Long Island and uh, was very close with my maternal grandparents. So in some ways, I uh, feel like, uh, you know, they had such a huge hand in raising me. They were, um, you know, I come from like a, a Sicilian background. Uh, my, my mother's family uh, are, you know, very Italian. So if you can imagine that, uh, it might come out as I talk with my hands or I, I emote a lot. And so that is, you know, definitely a big part of who I am. I can relate. Um, I have a little bit of Sicilian in me too. They came, my grandfather came straight from Sicily. So I right hear on. you. I, I know exactly exactly what you're okay. speaking of. Great. And then my father, uh, my biological father uh, was Jewish. So, you know, the joke is like that, you know, pizza bagel. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. <laughs> I haven't. Um, so growing up in the 80s uh, with my parents being divorced when I was very young, it was hard. Um, my mom mm -hmm. was a single, even with the support of my grandparents, my mom had to work two jobs um, mm -hmm. and we lived in a really tiny um, basically somebody's garage uh, that oh they converted like into like a one room apartment. And it, it really left an indelible kind of mark for me because um, just seeing my mom really struggle, there was a lot of stigma for her to be, you know, a, a single mom at that time. And we lived in an area on Long Island that was adjacent to a fairly affluent uh, part of Long Island. And so I knew from a very early age that things were different. Like I didn't have the things that mm -hmm. the people around me had um, insofar as when I went to their homes and just seeing, you know, the two family house and like all of the, yeah. the of that, but I never wanted for, you know, any type of, you know, love and support again from, I, I did have um, a really my, my grandfather, especially, um, you know, became larger than life. I mean, he was um, the most amazing you know, maybe it's stereotypical, but the most amazing cook. And I just grew up like around this sort of, you know, um, boisterous and, and, you know, kind of uh, full of love and life, um, you know, environment in many ways. But there was definitely, you know, things that were, that were tough about, uh, you know, there wasn't really, I think, an emphasis on co-parenting as there is. Uh -huh. today. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of those, um, you know, things that, you know, leave a, leave a mark on you, you know, uh, where I didn't see my dad that much. Um, I saw him on the weekends for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, it, it was different too, right? Because it felt a little bit more like, um, the friend sometimes, you know, like, in but, you know, mm -hmm. in a cool, like we would go to the movies and he was somebody who also really instilled the love of culture. Um, movies, books, um, perhaps nice. maybe to, uh, in an, in a way that would be challenging for my mom. Like he let me have free reign, right? I was probably reading and exposed to some things that, you know, you'd be <laughs> like, is that really okay for the eight year old? But, yeah. um, but I, uh, really did appreciate that. So I grew up on Long Island, uh, again with my mom and then my mom met and married my stepfather, uh, who had three sons. And so that I have three stepbrothers. And that was a real shift because when that happened, mm -hmm. then we, we moved around quite a bit um, and finally settled uh, in Huntington, which is where I primarily grew up. Um, so it's on the North shore of Long Island. And I okay. always wanted to live in the city. So I know that there's lots of cities, but to a, mm -hmm. to a New Yorker who's from Long Island, there's only one and the that, city. Is, yeah. that is New York city. So um, I, 
decide I wanted to go to NYU and I told my family that and my mom at the time was like oh you know you you can't even find your way back with some breadcrumbs like you're you're, you're gonna move to Manhattan and like live in in you know like yeah um so she said I think you need a real college experience why don't you go um to like a, a when you're getting ready to go to college go to a college that actually has a campus and then eventually, you know, maybe you'll, you'll do that at some other point. I was like, all right, well, you know what my mom, you know, uh, uh-huh. loves to be right. And she is. <laughs> Don't so, you hate that when they it, are right? They are, they are. And, and she is, uh, you know, she, she, I grumble about it, but she definitely, I don't know if she, it's premonition or what, but mm-hmm. through, uh, you know, uh, I, I settled on, um, I went to Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and once I went on that campus, you know, I had that moment of rightness, and of course, I had to tell her, I was like, okay, you were right, but yeah. she really was, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, uh, it's a small, private, like, liberal arts college mm-hmm. in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so what was a girl from Long Island doing in the middle of Amish <laughs> country? Yeah. I don't know. Um but I got my degree in government and women's studies mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, just had an incredible time there. And then I thought I was going to go to law school. So maybe this is delving a little bit more into my work and everything. But this is kind of where I think the story gets, for me anyway, interesting because, mm-hmm. you know, I was always on a path and mm-hmm. everything seemed to be fairly prescribed. Um, mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be a lawyer and, you know, fight the good fight. Yeah. And uh, so I got into law school and then two weeks before the classes were supposed to start, I said, I don't think I want to, I don't think I want to do this. Really? Yeah. I was like, I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. Uh, What if I fail? Um, What if I can't take the classes? It looked, what if it's too hard? I was panicked. I was like, I was over, you know, I was like, whoa. And my mom just kind of said to me, okay, like, if you don't want to do this, like, it's not. And I hadn't, I had built up in my mind that you can never say no, like you can Uh never change. Uh Like I, because I, the way that I had grown up and and some of the the different struggles and things, I was just like, no, I have to have like, yeah, push forward. Yeah. yeah. And the money and I have to, you know, be able to, to provide for myself and for others. And, and so I had this like real sense and then she just made it okay, which, you know, I think a lot of, you know, we need people in our life sometimes oh, to just yes. again, create a, an environment to say, okay. So, so I decided, I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work in a law firm for a year and decide if it's really something that I want to do because oh, how wise. Honestly, you don't really know. I mean, when mm-hmm. you're sort of on the track from high school, I was in like debate team and uh, mock trial. Like it was just like, that's what I thought that I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I had never actually done the job. Like I yeah. had never. And so I worked at a law firm for a year, a very small firm on Long Island uh, that focused a lot on family law, guardianship, um, wills and estates and, tr- and elder care and things. Mm-hmm. And it was okay, but I just, I didn't feel fulfilled. I was like, Mm -hmm. I I don't really feel like I'm helping people in the way that I had always envisioned. I'm Mm -hmm. intrigued by the law. I love the academic side of it, but I don't know if I 
see myself and and even back then at like 20 or whatever being like is this really it like is this the only thing to do to i knew that i had a purpose i knew that i wanted to create change um mm-hmm. but i didn't think that filing motions <laughs> was necessarily was the way to go about it yeah yeah so wow. so i started doing some research and i was like all right you know what what do i love i love an academic environment and i guess like most people in the sense of like uncertainty i'll go back to school like mm-hmm. I, i'll go back to the place that makes sense mm-hmm. and so i decided to go to grad school and i applied to a couple different grad schools I, for, like i mentioned i was like maybe i'll be uh i'll get my doctorate and i'll be a professor of women's studies uh so i applied to sarah lawrence and, uh-huh. and i got in there and i could have done that um but what happened was that i applied to nyu and I created my own program of study to kind of meld feminist studies with public policy and law. And at the time, wow. I didn't even really know. But what I was really doing was crafting a course in social work. But I didn't really even know that. I didn't. I, I didn't even know that was a job. Like I had wow. never seen anybody or knew of anybody. Uh-huh. So, I'm, so I'm at the law firm, and I I created this. Um, Perspectus, really, and I I pr- presented it to mm-hmm. the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, and I said, you know, will you, <laughs> what do you say? And when I got that acceptance letter, it was like one of the best things that ever happened to me because it was really also the coming home of the dream mm-hmm. to go to New York City and to live in New York City and to almost like start my life if that yes. Like, because I had always wanted it and you know it seems like were, you found your purpose right. so when you find your purpose there's so much excitement in following oh, yeah. that path isn't there yeah and I didn't feel the sense of fear and unease that uh-huh. when I had got because I had also gotten when I had gotten into law school I was going to go to New York law so I was also going to be able to have the opportunity to live and be in Manhattan but this was different this was mm-hmm. like the dream I had always wanted NYU and then getting that was like the most incredible thing. And that was what really started to introduce me to connecting the the dots to all the things I had been doing and learning about and being like, now this is where I belong. So I, and there was no real, um, there was no one to necessarily look to because part Mm -hmm. of being an individual, individualized study is that you craft the path Mm -hmm. you take classes from all these different disciplines and you need to go and basically pitch yourself to these professors who are letting you come into their class so i needed to like knock on the doors and say hi i'm not formally in the social work program or in the public policy program i but but i am asking to be in your class to to theoretically take a slot from someone else. Uh-huh. Um, and this is what I want to do with wow. my degree. So wow. I wound up me- meeting a mentor, um, Dr. Marjorie Rock, who really kind of took me under her wing. And she was the first one to say, everything you're talking about sounds a lot like social work. She's like, the interesting thing is though, you kind of picked the opposite school, like, cause you want to do a lot of policy work and big macro work. Mm-hmm. Normally people go to Columbia for that. 
you came to NYU and we're a school that tends to teach a lot of people how to put a shingle on a door and go into private practice. And I was like, oh man, well, I don't oh, want to no. do that. Uh -huh. well, oh man. And she was like, well, you lucked out again because I am actually the director of doing all the, the public policy work in the social work department. Mm -hmm. So I will, if you want, I'll be your advisor and we're going to build this together. Wow, how lucky. Now, did your desire, when you finally realized this is called social work, did you always have this, this leaning towards social justice? Is that why you wanted to go into law because you saw right. the injustice happening and you thought, oh, I can fix this with justice in the law? Exactly. Okay. And I, you know, interestingly, like now I see, I, I think, you know, I always kind of joke that I was like more culturally Jewish than anything else, but I think mm -hmm. that that really informed me, you know, that the, there is so much in the culture and the religion about mm -hmm. trying to use your gifts, the things that yes. you have at your disposal for people who have been and are oppressed, um, who have been marginalized, who have been neglected, and that always, re it was never, um, I mean, the, again, the extent of, of uh, my Jew Jewish upbringing from my father was like, you know, having bagels and whitefish on the weekend, you know, yeah. it was not like we went to, to the temple, but, but uh, that consciousness, uh, like, was sort of always there, and I, mm -hmm. I actually feel like now, it's like in the blood, like, of, mm -hmm. of, of aligning myself with, with any um, cause where I see something that is, um, yeah, that, that, that's not right. I just, yes. I feel like I had to jump in the fray. Well, it um, seems like you have an awareness uh, and that awareness was always surrounding you. Maybe you didn't have the name for it at the time, right. but when you have that awareness, you can't not do something. So that's neat. Yeah. The path you took, yeah. that awareness led you to a path that was unique to you. Right. Um, and you're bringing these unique interests and, and passions and focusing them in a specialized area. I just love that. I love it. There's really no wrong way, but the way you found was perfectly you. I do. Yeah. Thank you. I, I do feel like, you know, it's, there's all those like sliding glass door moments, but mm -hmm. like the, when it was right, it was so right. You knew it. Uh -huh. I felt it in the gut. And so mm -hmm. Um, so I was at NYU and it was, uh, the second year, it was the, the first semester of my second year, I walked into a class called therapeutic jurisprudence and I met the professor who I then found out is the chief presiding judge of the Red Hook Community Justice Center in Red mm -hmm. Hook, Brooklyn. And it's the nation's first multi-jurisdictional court, meaning it covers family uh, uh, or criminal matters, uh, civil matters, and, and housing matters. And it was in that moment when I took that class, I said, I need to be doing exact, this is the thing. Uh -huh. I, never, I never knew, this, this, is the, this is it. It's the intersection between law and social services. It's meant to address the root causes why people go into the system in the first place. Yes. And I left out, of that class, called my mom, I never forget it, you know, in Washington Square. Uh -huh. And I said, that's it. I, I love I, it. I found the person, I was like, I'm gonna go up to, and I, I'm gonna go up to this man 
and I'm going to tell him that I'm going to work for him. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like, sure. I mean, she's like, she's whatever makes you happy, right? Uh-huh. Whatever makes you happy, Melissa. So I went up to him and I said, look, it was like the second class and we hadn't even really learned anything, but I was mm-hmm. like, I know that this mm-hmm. is it. And I was like, I want to be involved in your courtroom. There's any way, I don't know if you take on interns or anything. I just, I want to be involved. And he was like, uh, but maybe, maybe this has happened to him or before. And certainly I'm, I'm sure it's happened to him since, but he said, okay, come out to Red Hook. I think he was trying to deter me. Like, he's like, if you can mm-hmm. find your way <laughs> from, yeah from here to, to, you know, the Southwest Brooklyn, like, okay, um, you know, we'll talk. He said, come out and sit on the bench with me for, for a day and see if this is really what you're interested in and what you think about. And the minute I got off the B61 bus mm-hmm. at Visitation and Verona, that was another moment where I was like, wow. this is home. This is the exact place I've I've always meant to be. It was more home than any other place that I had ever been. That's fascinating. You're teaching us how to listen to our inner guide or our gut or our conscious or whatever that is people call it. You're I'm getting goosebumps as you relate this story because I think we've all experienced those moments and how many of us act on them and how many of us just brush it aside. I think that's beautiful that you're taking these risks these unknowns and you're just walking into it with such excitement. I love this. And probably a bit of like 26 year old hubris. Right? Oh, like, for, I mean, sure. Just, for sure. For um, sure. Yes. It takes some of that too. <laughs> yeah. I, or yeah. The, the chutzpah. Right. Um, yeah. So, so I got to, um, to Red Hook and I walk inside and it is um, a converted Catholic school that they had completely refurbished and turned into a courtroom, but the courtroom in many respects was secondary to everything else going around it. Hmm. And I was just struck, I think like many people in the community were struck. It was beautifully lit. I mean, like windows. I mean, so, so different from any other courtroom I had been in. Sure. Yeah. Black box, really depressing. I mean, everything was bright, clean, everything from the way that the court officers greeted you when you walked in, like, hi, how can we help you? Right. This was like, a mind shift because Mm. anywhere that I had ever been and interned uh, was around the legal system was just not that environment. And so I walked in and I said, I was here for, for the judge and they were like, okay, great. And he sat me right. He was good in his word. And he sat me right beside him. And he, the way that he was interacting with the community and the litigants, it was something that I had never seen. The care, the concern, the way he was asking questions that weren't just about the case, but saying, hey, you know, um, oh, I saw your son at the Little League game. You know, how did he wound up doing? Uh-huh. I mean, this was law for the, pe- truly for the people. It was taking it out of the uh, the ivory tower and, yes. and sort of like this kind of like just machine of law, right? Like processing cases. And it, it was something that I just knew. I said, this is where I have to be. So once I finished that class, um, I was very fortunate uh, to apply. To, I applied to two jobs there that happened to be open at that time, which was very fortuitous. One mm-hmm. was to be what was called a planner, which was more in like development. And the other job 
was to run AmeriCorps programs out of the Justice Center. Uh-huh. And so I met the director uh, who continues to be, to me, just a beacon in this work and the most incredible mentor. I met James Brodick and, and he says it was a, a cool day because on the same day he interviewed me, he interviewed a, a good friend and, and colleague in the work. Her name is Kate. And we both came in like these young kids from NYU. We both happened to be you mm-hmm. know, students from NYU. And he interviewed us. He said, the best thing I ever did, I hired you both. So I was hired to run the AmeriCorps programs and she was hired as the planner. And I defended my thesis on a Wednesday. I graduated on a mon- the following Monday and I start, oh no, I graduated on the Friday. I started at Red Hook on the following Monday. Oh, wow. And that was, that was it. And I've been doing this work now for over 16 years. Incredible. So how did you get from Red Hook to Defy Ventures? It sounds like Red Hook was such a, an integral part of your, your learning, your growth as a, a person and your care for society, taking the law and making it not hiding behind it, but using it as, as a help actually. How did you go from that to now working for Defy Ventures where they help people who are coming out of prison? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can see a little bit of the connect the dots, but could you connect, make that align for us? Sure. So, um, so I was hired. Uh, so the, the organization that runs Red Hook is called the Center for Court Innovation. So I worked for the Center for Court Innovation for seven years. And I started at Red Hook and I always worked more on the social service side. So I worked with people um, to stop them from having to come into the courtroom, right? Mm -hmm. Or I worked with people after they were in the courtroom to keep them from uh, as an alternative to incarceration. So a lot of our work was trying to, again, find out why were people interacting in the system in the first place? Most of the time people were coming, that was a last resort. Yes. Because those other needs were not addressed. Yes. And quite frankly, this, the legal system was never built to address the human needs of our society. It's always mm. been on the back end. Beautiful. And so, so I was really um, passionate about what we did. And people would say, well, why, why are you running a little league out of a courthouse? Or why are you running a photography pro- program for high school students? why are you doing this youth court thing? Like, what does that even, what does that even mean? And I, w- I said, what, I, what we're doing is expanding the notion of what justice is and how justice operates. Mm. And that's why we are out in the community having a movie night in the park to, to give people places where they can go and convene and be so that there are not these other alternatives Mm-hmm. that are negative, that are really breaking down the community, right? The real gift for me was that I had these amazing mentors, again, who took me out of my sphere of reality and understanding as a white woman, uh, you know, of, of relative privilege, um, of significant privilege, um, and, and really shook shook me like shook my understanding in good ways in necessary ways like i remember one time i went into um james's office and i said you know the americorps members they're not coming to the thing that you know they're not doing And, and he said melissa not everybody looks at the world the way you do 
and, mm. and, and will behave the way that, that just because you perceive this to be of importance, how, how have you actually communicated that? And, and if they don't see it that way, why not? Are you listening? And like, just things mm. that I was like, my, my brain was blown away at like 26, 27 years old. I was just like, because no one had ever taught me yeah. to challenge my own thinking, my own assumptions in yeah. that way. We um, all need somebody like him to tell yeah. us that. I, I, yeah. At what point, at what stage in our life? Right. I don't know, but I wish somebody would have spoken that into my life at 26. I mean, how much oh. difference would that have made? Oh, for sure, right? I mean, I, that's why I I talk a lot. I, I joke and I say, I, I went to the James Brodick School of Management. So I was at Red Hook for about four years. I never stop, you know, I, I tend to, what I started to really think about within my professional career was to find the jobs that terrified me and that I knew nothing about and say, I wanna do, I wanna do that. Mm -hmm. And so I kept going to James being like, oh, you need help over here? I don't know anything about that, but I'm hungry. I'll work hard, you know I'll work hard, I'll figure it out, just give me that chance. And so he continued to give me like many, many more opportunities to not just be within Red Hook, but to be seen. The Center for Court Innovation is a very large organization. It works within all the boroughs in New York. It also has an international presence. And so through that, I was able then to become one of the youngest program directors in the center's history at that time wow. and start up my own project on Staten Island. Mm -hmm. So Staten Island is known for being somewhat different from the rest of the city and being a bit more conservative uh, mm -hmm. in terms of its politics and its, uh, its behaviors. And so that was a terrifying thing, you know, to, to leave the comfort of Red Hook that I knew in the community. Yes, I, I imagine. And started that. So, so we started with one program, which was an alternative to detention for young people. So keeping mm -hmm. them out of what is essentially youth jail. Mm -hmm. um, so I started that. And by the time we had left, we actually created a justice center. So we had like five or six programs underneath that. Incredible. And now it's even bigger. It, it, it actually, I think, serves adults too, not just young people, mm -hmm. which is really cool to have. And that started in my mind, the bug of startup. Like I would never uh, classify myself as a traditional entrepreneur, but now X number of years later and being with Defy, I see, I see in my past, like all of this real um, founder mentality and uh -huh. hunger that is really interesting. But again, I didn't have a name for it. Didn't have a, certainly didn't have a lexicon around it. Just was like doing stuff. So I started at Staten Island and then James actually was tapped to start up a justice center in Brownsville, Brooklyn, which at that time was known as the most murderous part of, of the city, very under-resourced. And mm. so I said <laughs> to our bosses, I said, let me still run Staten Island, but let me help James also do what he's doing. Because mm -hmm. I, I have to be a part of that, have to do it. Everyone again thought I was crazy, started mm -hmm. splitting my time between Staten Island and Brownsville. So I started learning more at that time about gun violence interruption programs. I was very passionate about that. And it actually brought me to Chicago for one of the first times to learn from some of the gun intervention models that were mm -hmm. happening out of Chicago okay. um, called Ceasefire. 
And so that, that was just like an interesting thing and intrigued me. And around the same time, I met my now husband, who's from Chicagoland area. He worked in tech. And so, you know, when Apple calls you on the phone, you pick up the phone. And so we had the opportunity to move to California. And I had to leave the center, which was really, in a lot of ways, it was like a, a grieving process because I could have seen myself staying with the Center for Court Innovation until, you know, I don't know, end days, right? Like, because I yeah, love my work. Sure. I, love, I love the people I worked with. But again, James said to me, he's like, jobs come and go. You have a passion for this. He's like, but you, you want a family too. You know, you want a personal life and you have to invest in that. And that was another real inflection point because I had always just been thinking my role is to give to others and not really thinking necessarily about what was happening for me. But I took another leap. I had never really been to the West Coast before. My husband and I decided to move to the Bay Area. The, the one thing that I, I have a little regret with that is I didn't really spend a lot of time getting to know the area. I was so like, I need to still be doing something. I need to mm -hmm. be connected with my purpose. So I actually had lined up a job before I was even fully ensconced in California mm -hmm. due to my connections at, at the center. I learned about a new reentry program that was starting up with San Francisco adult probation and they needed a, a startup director, somebody who could, you know, handle a capital project. Um, it was like a $10 million budget and build out of a, of a building that was going to house about 13 or 14 different service providers on the first floor. And the mm -hmm. second floor was going to have adult probation. So I mm -hmm. interviewed for that position and I got that. So I was the founding director of the center that the center for um, services and assessment it probably has a different name now, but that was a, a huge undertaking. So I I, I, had, yes. I had literally moved cross country, um, and then you know two days after I moved, I started this new role. So I, I that was my one like little regret of not Intense. not giving myself like enough time to really acclimate to mm -hmm. because I, I think again in that hubris or young love or whatever I was like oh what's a move across the country what's the big deal it is a big deal yes. it's a big shock um, yes. to the system for sure this season is brought to you by defy ventures they are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. You've said this several times, you want to be connected with your purpose. And I think that is a beautiful description that matches who you are. It's a constant in your life. And because you want to be connected to your purpose, your purpose is to help others ultimately, right? That's the ultimate goal and to help them find their best life. 
And so you were, you're convicted to, to help those who have just fallen down and made bad choices or just gotten distracted. Or, or I would say just that, um, that society has not created opportunity for, or Mm. have not been given a fair, any type of fair shake, any real, any real, like anybody who's been kept down, because I honestly feel like it's not just that, yes, some people have made some poor choices, but I honestly feel like it's in the environment. Like there's there and the, and factors that are well beyond people's control that, that often happen. And then you're sort of, it's a false choice. It's a dichotomy. Like, what do you expect? You're right. You're creating these, you're creating the structures that lead people to fail. It's what I see in the legal system, right? We talk a lot now about the system was designed to do exactly what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, so so when people are like, oh, we need to reform. I actually, you know, I've had my own, you know, reimagining and awakening now because I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize. I mean, I, I definitely saw the inequity and I, I, I had different vantage point, but I didn't see it and feel it as viscerally. I think through my work with Defy, um, that has opened my eyes in numerous ways. And certainly in the, the movement that we're living in now mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, in the wake of George Floyd and mm-hmm. so many others. So, so when I was in California, I, I was running this big reentry center and, uh, And to be very honest, at a certain point, I was miserable. I was miserable because a lot of it was about mandating people, forcing, trying to use the levers to get people to do things, Mm -hmm. to use the hammer of the justice system. Yes, yes. And that, I, I was like, I'm banging my head against the wall because I know you cannot want it more for people than they want it for themselves. Yes. You can't make people make good choices. Yeah. And so, so I was putting all this pressure on myself to be like, oh, I have to have so many people come through this program and successfully complete these Mm -hmm. modules and do all these things. And I was sort of at that point of like, whoa, am I burning out? Am I actually like many people in our, in our field do where you sort of get to a point of like, why am I even, why Mm -hmm. am I doing this? Like Mm -hmm. I'm seeing all this, um, in Silicon Valley, certainly I'm like, oh, I could work at like, I don't know, Twitter or Dropbox yeah. or something. And you know, they get snacks and like, it seems really cool. I'm sure they're doing things that change. Get snacks. <laughs> but, but like, but I was like, what is happening? Like I'm, yeah. I'm working, you know, um, I'm doing everything and I just don't feel like I'm making the difference or I'm, I'm having the impact. And that was really difficult. So um, I found out about Defy. I saw like a job posting come through because they had actually gotten a Google Impact Challenge grant to expand from the East Coast where they started to the West Coast. And, and I just like applied and, um, and I, I was brought in and they said, you know what, come to an event, come see what we do before we even really talk to you about job opportunities. Like we want you to kind of get a sense of this. And I walked into a coaching night and I had that same like lightning bolt moment that mm-hmm. I was like back in Red Hook all those years mm. ago. I met this group of people who have, who had experienced incarceration. And, and honestly, that was inconsequential within the first five minutes of meeting them and hearing these great business ideas, seeing all these volunteers from various businesses and who had been like angel investors and such. And 
and everybody was like in community together. And I realized that it was honestly not even that much about the business aspect so much as putting people together in these dyads or, you know, small groups where you're getting to hear about how they want to move their life forward and how motivated they are and how passionate and how they want to grab onto every opportunity. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm sold. Where do yes. I sign? <laughs> I was like, yeah. I had another moment where I was like, I don't know what you need and I don't know how you can use my skill set, but I want to be involved in this. And this is startup again, brand new. Nobody knew Defy. So I was hired, actually um, started at Defy in, what was it? 2014, 2014 2015, um, as the development and recruitment manager. And everyone, again, thought that I was nuts. I left the job on paper, like even to the point that the Mm -hmm. chief probation officer called me into her office before I, and she was like, are you sure you want to do this? Like Mm. you're leaving the job. Like why? This is Mm -hmm. the the big budget, the title, like this Mm -hmm. and that. And I said, it's not what motivates you. (laughs) I gotta go. I gotta go. And I was so happy, even though Defy was like, we had no infrastructure. We didn't really have like, I mean, when you, when I look at who we are now and what we accomplished, I mean, it was like, it's just night and day. Like yeah, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. You got to start somewhere. But, um, you know, I was really, yeah, I was thrilled. I mean, it was, it was a pay cut. It was this, it was that. And yeah. it was, it was challenging in a lot of different ways, but it, it just tapped me back into the spirit of myself of like, I mean, I guess that we, we had the tagline, like of, of hustling, of being out in the community again, doing what I love, like community engagement. Um, I would drive around all over the place from, uh, from Oakland to Richmond, to San Francisco, to, to San Jose. I would be all over Mm -hmm. like talking to people about this and like evangelizing the mission. Wow. And I was like, this is, this is what I love to do. And that is kind of what brought us here, I guess, because I did it, I did it again, moved to, so then we had our baby, and then, and so, like I mentioned, my husband's from here, he's from the Midwest, and so, you know, in the delirium of, you know, a three-month-old, and he was like, why don't we move closer to family? I said, yes, pack up the house, like, sell the (laughs) house, I'm ready, but I I love that I'm still connected, the fact that we have Mm -hmm. Defy chapters in Mm -hmm. all these other places um, is great, because I'm Mm -hmm. still intimately interwoven with them. That's beautiful. Just a beautiful story. When you know people's story, you better understand them. And that's effectively what you're doing with a lot of the clients of Defy, right? For me, a lot of the strife and everything I think in our world is because we're not taking time to hear each other's story and to share in our humanity. So um, well said. it's something that I uh, really value. And I think... um, yeah, just to contribute to that and to be a part of that and to hold space for it. Um, I don't, I, you know, I was reflecting, you know, we always are like, how are you? And every, you know, you hear, oh, I'm fine. Everything's good. But, you know, there's actually probably so much more, right, to sure. underneath the surface of that. But we are very uncomfortable, I think, as a society, um, really knowing um, mm-hmm. somebody's story or really knowing um, what's going on. So it's cool just that you know, that, that this is something that you're passionate about. So yes, yeah, yes. very excited. 
Thank you. Yeah, we, we do tend towards the shallowness of life, don't we? It's easier. We don't have to hold space, like you sure. said. That's an excellent way of saying it, because once you know, then you have to do something about it. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Or you, or you don't, and then you have to confront the why you don't, uh, which is also, I think, an uncomfortable place mm -hmm. uh, for people to be. That's so true. Oh, I, But I want to go back to something that you touched on that I find, I mean... We could talk about this forever because this is the crux of, I think, so much of what's going on in our society right now is this social oppression and how we almost criminalize poverty. We yes. say people are making bad choices when they're false. You mentioned the false choices. So we're like, the assumption that you said your mentor made to you, James made to you, mm. hey, not everybody is looking at it your way. Not everybody sees things from the same perspective. Have you taken the time to step back? Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people look at people who have been incarcerated, people who are poor, people who have, you, you name the negative uh, image attached to their persona, and they're like, well, too bad for them, but if they would just make better choices, they wouldn't be in these shoes, right? That's something that you can say when you come from luxury, when you're looking at the mm -hmm. top down, sure. isn't it? Sure. Could you speak a little more to that? Because I think this is the crux of all of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, the people don't know until they experience it. So I have, I've had, you know, the privilege and, and, you know, I think these folks would even say it themselves, right? Like they never imagined that they would have to experience incarceration, right? Um, mm -hmm. they, they never felt, uh, or they never had exposure to that in their life. And they were like, you know, shocked when, you know, the, the long arm of the law, right, came and it came mm -hmm. for them. Um, and this, this dissidence, right, that we have like, oh, that's so other, there but for the grace of God go I, right? Isn't like the I truth. Mean, the, yes. the reality is that um, we all have things that we have done that we would not want to have to wear a scarlet letter for, mm -hmm. but we just haven't gotten caught. Mm -hmm. And the other reality is that due to the systemic racism that this country has been built on, people who are black and brown are looked under a microscope. The things that they do that we would perhaps never get picked up for for the same exact thing, that's what buttresses mass incarceration in this country. Mm -hmm. It is. Right? And totally. there's so many examples of this. I mean, the war on drugs being the most paramount. Yes. Right? So we see marijuana being decriminalized in so many communities at this point, or not so many, but, but in several. Um, and who's now making money off of the legal cannabis industry? It's white entrepreneurs. I mean, and that's why mm -hmm. we're having conversations about equity. Like where are mm -hmm. the opportunities for, for the people who are spending 30, 40 years of their lives inside yeah. for the things that now are, it's a huge industry that the tax dollars are now being sourced to go in. Now that's supposed to be, I don't know, reparations or something like these monies are now mm. being earmarked. And, and I don't want to denigrate that because I think it's important, right? I mean, at mm -hmm. least there's an acknowledgement of that. And we mm -hmm. do see that those funds need to be then put into the hands of the community to be used to address things where th those communities have been divested in. So if you're going to make money off of our, of our pain, and our trauma, mm -hmm. then we need those monies 
to have real programs that invest in educational and vocational opportunities for the community. Stop the systemic social oppression. Exactly. Because I mean, even as you were reflecting, like I was telling you like kind of my story, everybody has a story. Yes. Everybody has that, these moments along the way, no one woke up in the morning saying, you know, when they were first born, like, I'm just going to go and I'm going to, you know, take, you know, these, uh, you know, sawed off shotguns and and go do a drug deal. Like nobody, nobody gets into that without there being a lot of different points that honestly, there could have been off ramps. There could have been uh, intervention. There could have been, forget intervention. There could have been real opportunity. Not like some, so when people are talking again about, oh, well, so-and-so just needs a job. No, they need a, something that is leading towards a career with a living wage mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is a meaningful work trajectory. Yes. There are jobs all over the place, but you don't want to do that job, but you mm-hmm. want somebody else of a different ethnicity or a different religion or whatever mm-hmm. to do that. You don't want to do that because you feel like the pay isn't right, doesn't provide for your family doesn't have any sort of benefits. Well, why would you think that another individual does? Mm-hmm. And why would you think that they are not going to be savvy enough to figure out how to supplement mm-hmm. that pay yes. in a way that is quite, fr- it's an underground economy yep. because we have not created equal access. Yes. To, and the, re- and the, the point of it, I think we all can acknowledge is that we are n- we're in a country of abundance. Yes. There is not an issue about not having the wherewithal to pay people fair living wages, but we need that political and social will to do it, which is why at Defy, we believe in inclusive economies. We are not it. assuming that everybody who comes into our program is going to be a small business owner. That's not necessarily the point. Mm-hmm. We're trying to also shift the mindset of the mm-hmm. business community to create real avenues to saying, this is an untapped talent pool. You want folks Mm. to come into your business who are hungry, who are going to have employer-centered thinking, who are Mm going to do an amazing job. And we have them. Mm -hmm. They have gone through their transformation. Now, not everybody who's inside has gone through our program and not everybody who's inside is necessarily going to be right for our program. But the thing that resonates with me about Defy is that people are self-selecting. They're at a point of beyond Mm pre-contemplation. They are at that level of readiness and they're Mm -hmm. wanting to make that commitment. They want to take the opportunity and they're going to far exceed our expectations of them. Because when you underestimate people, when you put them into that box and say, oh, well, just because you were incarcerated for X number of years, you're limiting yourself from experiencing their greatness. That yes. is why I love to be part of this program. And I've been here for six years is because I have seen the most like brilliant, brave, like genuine, kind, entrepreneurial, fun, cool people that you wouldn't expect to find maybe in a maximum security prison, but I have. And That's I've had beautiful experiences there. I've had painful experiences there too, like hearing the trauma and the stories that people have had to endure, Mm -hmm. not only 
through systemic racism, but on a micro personal level, the loss of loved ones mm -hmm. early on mm -hmm. and the, the psychological trauma and the, the, the things that they sublimate those feelings and those emotions because there's no healthy way to deal with that in, in various communities. There's not always those resources. Yes. And so then people turn to things that we, again, we fault them for the, the very things that we think, oh, well, it's fun to go out and have a drink every now and again, you know, like that's how I let off steam. Well, somebody else might really lose themselves for a while in that fun escape because they mm -hmm. don't have any other healthy coping mechanisms. Yes, yes. So it's so much about the teaching and the right. what you were doing at the beginning of your career and giving those opportunities and and showing people other ways that many have never been shown because of their um, growing up conditions, right? Because I mean, of the oppression. Yeah, and I think it's like that that quote. It's like when you know better, you do better. You do better, yes. Well, I also, uh, one of my guiding quotes for starting Gramercy was from Mr. Rogers, when he said, um, there isn't anybody in this world that once you've heard their story, you don't love. That's paraphrased. I'm sure he said it in no. a better way. But sure. that's the truth, because every single person I've interviewed, I just, I, like I said at the beginning of our, our um, when we first we're meeting, I'm like, I just love talking to strangers and hearing their stories because then you're just like, oh, I see. That makes perfect sense. I understand you better now. And it sounds like Defy does that for the people who choose to join. And it sounds like it's also educating the business community as well. I did not realize that. You're, you're opening the eyes. You're helping the business community become more aware of right. these people, their circumstances, right. and the opportunity to speak into their lives and give opportunities, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think like, I mean, it's sort of the overall human desire, right? Mm -hmm. To see and to be seen. Yes. And that that's really, I think what we offer and why I think our volunteer program is different than maybe some other ones, right? So, you know, a business executive might come in and say, oh, I'm going to give some wisdom around marketing and branding today. And I'll say, okay, but don't perceive that it's going to be completely didactic and that you're just going to be putting all this information out there as like, be prepared that there's actually going to be an exchange of something mm -hmm. and you invariably will learn things about yourself, about this world that mm -hmm. you perhaps have not. And that's actually the very reason why you should want to sign up and participate with us because it's not going to be your typical, okay, let's everybody put on, you know, our company shirt and go clean up the graffiti or yes. clean up the park, which is important. Do not get me wrong, mm -hmm. but it's a different type of volunteer experience when we're asking you to embrace radical vulnerability and to mm, make yourself, I gotta write that down. Make yes. yourself be, put yourself out there. And we do that through different exercises like um, our step to the line exercise, where when we are in prison, you know, we'll have like two lines of tape um, down on the floor in the gym. And it starts out with something like, you know, um, who, who here likes hip hop, right? If you do step to the line and mm -hmm. mostly everybody does. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's some you know, giggles and some people are like, you know, I love Jay-Z, whatever, right? And everybody's kind of building some quick community like in that, oh, wow, we, we share this similarity. But it very quickly also transitions into challenging certain things like, you know, um, I talked a little bit about my father. I don't 
talk about it tons, but, um, you know, when I was 18, he sort of like left my life and uh, he had a lot of mental health challenges. Ultimately, um, you know, he was homeless for a while mm. and, uh, you know, he passed because he didn't have uh. a lot of the support, you know, and, and a lot of different things happened that, you know, when a lot of the EITs, that's what we call our participants, entrepreneurs in training, they don't know my story they don't assume my story but when we're at the line and i'll you know it'll be something like you know i i lost a parent or i haven't spoke you know i i, I have unresolved you know things with a family member and watching when we walk to the line there is this moment of of recognition and sense of compassion mm-hmm. um because of the really, commonality yeah and and that that gives us space to do that when people perceive that we're just a program about business or entrepreneurship, I, I have to demystify it, you know, demystify it quickly and say, mm-hmm. no, you have to be willing to go deep and look and, and acknowledge the things that we have had in our lives personally that happened again from a societal level and be willing to step out and say, you know, and reach your hand kind of across that line and say, me too. I see you, you see me, I see you. And, and, and this is, this is where actual change gets made. And if, if nobody in my program in Illinois actually starts up a small business, I'll be a little bummed. I'll be a little surprised. Um, but I actually tell people all the time, it's not really my end game. My end Mm. game is giving people a chance to realize their true potential and letting them know that people care about them that people love them for who they are and that they don't have to be ashamed or hide and that we are here to support them. That is unmitigated success. We all need somebody in our life to affirm that to us, no matter who we are. That's just beautiful. I'm so glad you are doing the job you are doing. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm extremely grateful to be able to do this work. It is an absolute gift. I mean, I love you you say you love to be able to hear people's story um, with Gramercy. I love meeting new participants. Like I am, mm-hmm. I get pumped up and I always say to them too, I'm like, well, if you like this, if you thought this was good, you think this is a good opportunity for you? I'm like, tell other people who might be in your network who are similarly impacted. Like you only can really hold on to something. This is like an adage, I think from the substance dependency world or whatever, but like mm-hmm. you can only keep it if you give it away. This yes. Great. Right. Like share this out in the world. Yes. So that's yes. what's really fun is when people like I'm sure you saw with your students, right? They have that aha, and then they're giving that to other people. Well, I could sit here and talk to you all day. I am, and I'm just enthralled. I'm enthralled. I love, I love your heart. I love your mind. I love your passion. There's so many other bunny trails. I think I would love to go down with you, but I'm going to try to bring this to a concise close. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you your closing questions now. In your opinion, what is your one best tip to make the world a better place? I think it is start small. What you think is small actually might be huge to someone else. And I'm, Mm. I realized that more now. I think when I was younger, I thought I had to, um, you know, uh, 
again, everything comes back to James, but like, I remember calling him one time and complaining about something, like something isn't working. And he was like, Melissa, like, have you stopped youth crime? Like, you, you think you've swo swooped in like a superhero <laughs> and you're gonna like stop, you know, all of this on your own? Like, he's like, firstly, that that's a horrible burden to put onto yourself. It's like an, ins it's like, you're going to be like Sisyphus pu pushing the rock up the mountain. Mm -hmm. Like, he's like, why don't you give yourself, you know, and this con so that's all that he said. And, and I've always ruminated on it because it's like, give yourself that gift of, 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 of grace. But like the thing, like just reaching out to someone and saying, we started this by saying, how are you? And truly wanting to hear how somebody is yes. that actually is a big part of defy. So when we, when we're sitting across from each other and we're we're delving into the business idea, the first the first question is like how are you? How is this going for you? Tell me about your experience. Like let me hear you because there's not always and I think even like this podcast is a gift. I don't think I've told this story, my story like that probably ever-ish. I I don't know. I don't mm. know that there's a lot a lot of people who would give an hour and a half of their time to hear a stranger's story mm -hmm. um, and hold it with such uh, with 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 the sense that I get from you that like you genuinely care and I and do. honestly um, respect that because I think I go through my life a lot like nobody like who they got mm. their own stuff no one cares so I would say like start small and giving someone that gift of just saying like. How are you? Or what could I, what, what can I do for you that would actually add value mm -hmm. as opposed to my perception of what I think that you need? Yes. Yes. Withhold judgment and give your full attention right. to them in that moment. Yes. Fantastic. That's an excellent tip that not one person I've asked in both seasons have, has ever said anything like that. So you are the first. I love that. Um, I can always learn something new. That's the beauty of it. Every day I want to learn something new. And this is going down on my new list today. Well, um, like Kamala says, first but not the last. So That's right. Yes. <laughs> Let's quote Kamala. Um, what are you the most thankful for right now? In this very moment, I think reflecting on COVID and everything, I honestly am most grateful for my health and the health of the people that um, I, yes. I love. Um, you know, in my family, we lost several people over oh, the last year. Oh, I'm sorry. Year. Thank you. But like, and some, you know, had pre-existing conditions and everything. But I think, you know, when I look at what the global suffer, like everything going on mm -hmm. in our world, like at the very base, the fact that like we're here and we have the gift of another breath, like, then you have that choice of how do you use it? And yes. I hope that I'm using it in a way that is, um, that does right by the people who did, who have done so much for me. Like that, I honestly mm -hmm. feel this huge responsibility to all of these different people that I've had the privilege to come in contact, all the people I've gotten to work with, um, the family members that like, trusted me to work with their young people in mm -hmm. these different youth development programs to even our EITs now. I, I mean, I tell them all the time, I'm like, it is an honor to walk alongside of you with this. Yes. I can't do it for you, but like, I am privileged. Like people in prison, they, like, they're like, why would you come here? Why do you do this? I'm like, 
this is gonna blow your mind and I'm not saying it in a rude way because you're gonna be like this white girl, like I'm, a, I'm happiest here when I'm with you. And mm. I don't want you to be, like I want you to move forward and not to be behind these walls, but mm -hmm. I'm, ha and I never thought that. I mean, I, mm. and so having the health and the ability and to be, to be able-bodied, to be able to, to go and to, to do these things, I have, there are few ways that I have found to really encapsulate how grateful I am. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't it also, I've experienced this with my students and their families. It's humbling that people would allow you into that part of their lives, trust and trust their families with you and just realize just how much they, they really genuinely believe you genuinely care. And that's just a, a humbling place to be. And you want to honor that. And it sounds oh, yeah. like you're in those exact same shoes. Well, and I think it's always, always doing your self work and like, you mm -hmm. know, making sure that you're showing up like a hundred percent authentically. Um, because mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always interrogating like my motives, like, you know, how am I coming at this? Because I don't want to fall into white saviorism. I yep. don't want to fall into, um, you know, again, the, that like old, like bringing my business into, right. Like making sure that you have appropriate boundaries with everything. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's really important to continually just like, like express gratitude and show up authentically mm -hmm. and do, do the work and put in everything that you possibly can, but like never, never get complacent with that. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm, I'm always wanting people to to challenge me and to have, um, I forget, I don't know if I'm going to attribute it right, but like courageous conversation, mm. like Renee Brown, mm -hmm. um, that is super important to me yes. because if I'm, if I'm not living in that, then I don't deserve to do this. Mm. And I do think it's about being deserving. Like, I don't feel like it's like, random I mm -hmm. guess like you know reflecting on my story like I can see like it was not random like there yes. were very conscious choices and so like I constantly and I think that's a good thing right like because we can do a lot of different things with our lives so I'm consciously making that choice every day to like lean into these really hard uncomfortable spaces with myself and in community with with the people that I'm I'm privileged to work with like I hope that that continues to make me the person that I was meant to be because I yes. don't think I would be myself without having you know yes. a, as most of us know like these particular experiences yes thank you for reminding us of that I think that's an important thing to always stay aware of is that self-reflection and am I doing this out of roteness? Am I doing right. this because this is still my purpose? Sometimes we have to remind ourselves of the purpose. We have sure, to stay with that humility. Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Well, this last question might be very hard for you. I don't know. It is for me. What is your favorite quote? <laughs> it, it's from um, Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. It's Still I Rise. Mm -hmm. um, and she says, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Mm. And there's beautiful. more to the poem, but... Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
every time I hear that poem, I get goosebumps. I mean, that is just, that's truth right there. That's yeah. beautiful. Oh, Melissa, this has just been such an honor and a joy to sit and visit with you. I wish we had all day. I wish I could come have lunch with you. This is, I you're, really you're appreciate welcome. who you are the job you are doing, all the jobs you've done and the lives you've touched. Thank you for the work you are doing. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I, I wasn't kidding around. I don't think, um, I don't think I've ever really told this in that way before, mm -hmm. like all together. And I was actually thinking about it before we got on the call, like, oh, what will, will I say certain things? How will I present myself? And I, I'm not trying to sound self-serving, but I really did try to push myself to be very honest uh, in the parts that I don't frequently talk about. So um, thank you for giving me the chance mm -hmm. to do that. Um, well, so. to quote you, that radical vulnerability is hard, but yeah. you never know who it touches and who needed to hear those words or those parts of your life to help direct them. And maybe it's gonna help somebody else make a choice that they never would have made because they're inspired by that. So thank you for that radical vulnerability today. Yeah, it was my pleasure, it was fun. Thank you. All I can say is that I am so thankful for the Melissas of this world. Those people who work tirelessly for the underdog, who clearly see the system that failed them and valiantly aim to fix those broken structures. Melissa's pronouncement of the need to address the root causes of why people go into the system in the first place is paramount to reforming it. She and others that are like-minded are creatively seeking ways to give power back to those who were never given a fair chance in life through the self-education and entrepreneurial training that Defy Ventures offers. And not only are they empowering the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, they're actively working to create an inclusive economy by trying to shift the mind of the business owners to see the untapped talent pool in the population they serve. It's all about a purposeful and subversive shift in thinking that eventually changes the choices and actions of individuals, business leaders, volunteers, and eventually communities. This slowly seeps into society at large and challenges the perceived assumptions we've all accepted as the norm, and thus begins the evolution of thought that transforms a broken system one life at a time. We each discover our shared humanity. The quote that comes to mind when I think of Melissa is from another great purveyor of justice, Brian Stevenson. He says, simply punishing the broken, walking away from them or hiding them from sight, only ensures that they remain broken, and we do too. There is no wholeness outside of our reciprocal humanity. I see Melissa as someone who is connected to the incarcerated through our shared humanity and aims to bring out the best in those who are ready to transform their thoughts, lives, and actions. May we all choose this radical vulnerability that draws us closer together, just as Melissa has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road. Mm -hmm.